Let me ask you to turn with me this evening to the prophecy of Hosea. Hosea chapter 14, brief final chapter of this prophecy. We've started a look at the minor prophets in our Sabbath evening services. We opened with just some thoughts about the office of the prophets in general. And then came to the first in the canonical order. Hosea is also one of the earlier prophets, an 8th century prophet. You have to think backwards. It gets tough, you know. B.C. and A.D. And actually, it's a little side tidbit, but we speak about, say, 1000 B.C. But we don't, we're not supposed to say, say, 2023 A.D., it's A.D., the year of our Lord, 2023. That's just a little tidbit. It gets extra credit on your papers when you do that in school. But anyway, Hosea, as we mentioned, was called to minister in a season when God had raised up several writing prophets. Isaiah, Amos, contemporaries of Hosea, as he ministered in the northern kingdom of Israel. I want to read the closing chapter. We've looked already at really the opening three chapters of the prophecy. We'll review somewhat of that this evening. But reading this brief final chapter of Hosea together. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words, and turn to the Lord, and say unto him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. Asher shall not save us. We will not ride upon horses, neither will we say any more to the work of our hands. Ye are our gods, for in thee the fatherless findeth mercy. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from him. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow up as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread and his beauty shall be as the olive tree and his smell as Lebanon. They that dwell under his shadow shall return and they shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim shall say, What have I to do any more with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree, for me is thy fruit found. Who is wise, and he shall understand these things. Prudent, and he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them. But the transgressors shall fall therein. Amen. Linda reading. And again, we trust the Lord to add his blessing the public reading of His Word. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, again we gather tonight around Your Word and around Your throne and pray that You will be pleased to have a word in season for us. Or truly, much of the words of this prophecy and even the things within it we consider tonight, we might rightly think of applying to others that are yet lost perhaps out in apostasy, naming your name, and yet far from your truth. 
But Lord, if we be numbered among those that have turned from such apostasies and sin, let us be overwhelmed with the message of grace. And so do draw near and apply your word to us this night, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks ago as we looked at Hosea, we looked at the opening chapters and suggested that really the book divides into two sections. The first three chapters chronicle something of the experience, the life experience of the prophet Hosea himself. We talked a little bit about the questions that even conservative scholars have as to the Lord's instruction to him to marry a wife of whoredoms and how that has been variously understood. We seem to understand and suggest with our good brother Dr. Barrett that there's something of anticipation in that, that the Lord knew what was in the heart of Gomer, but she was not an impure woman at the point in which Hosea is instructed to take her to himself. A child is born to their union, something of the heart of Gomer then expresses itself. Two other children, children of infidelities, are born. We saw something of the remarkable gospel story as ultimately Hosea woos Gomer back to himself. Those children whose names speak of being set apart, not God's people, that it will be said to them they are indeed the children of the living God. And how Hosea's life experience is paralleled in the experience of God and the nation of Israel. I had to smile in one of the chapter headings in Dr. Barrett's book on Hosea. I'll have to acknowledge some shameless stealing from him again in a moment. But he entitled one of the chapters, Lifestyle Evangelism. Well, that's a phrase probably a few decades old now, that was suggested in contrast to confrontational evangelism and all those discussions we've wrestled with in the past. But an interesting title to a chapter dealing with the life of Hosea the prophet and how it was given to parallel the relationship between God and His people Israel. Well, I want to come tonight to the second portion of the book, chapters 4 to 14. We're going to give a hasty survey in the midst of our thoughts tonight of some of the descriptions that are found of Israel in this part of the book. We could suggest in one way that our previous message on those opening chapters was the analogy of Hosea. What we look at tonight are the announcements of Hosea or to drop the alliteration, just simply his message, his sermons to God's people, Israel. But what again I want to shamelessly steal from my brother Dr. Baird is a little trio of phrases that he used in one particular place in his book that really gives summary of this relationship between God and his people. What was true of Hosea and Gomer is true of Jehovah and Israel. It was a bond, it was a relationship that was initiated by love. It was spurned by sin. 
And it was maintained by loyalty. And I want to say borrow those three phrases from our brother and use those as an outline for our thoughts this evening. This relationship between the Lord and Israel was initiated by love. And I want you to turn, if you would, back with me, not in Hosea, but all the way back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7. While you're turning, just to remind you something we suggested in that opening study on the prophets in general. These prophets were not innovators. They weren't bringing new stuff to Israel. They weren't, as the liberals suggest, writing the books of Moses and kind of dating them. No. They were preaching taking the books of Moses, in many ways taking the book of Deuteronomy as their text, as they preached to Israel and called them back, constantly calling them back to the God that they had left. But when we consider that opening thought of this relationship being initiated by love, listen to me again, I trust something of familiar words, In Deuteronomy, but chapter 7, the opening verses as we read, When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, Thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter shalt thou not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, break down their images, cut down their groves, and burn their graven images with fire. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself. Above all people that are upon the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I trust if you are given to such things, or if you have various Bibles, some you mark in and some that you don't. But the seventh verse of Deuteronomy 7, The Lord did not set His love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all. But the Lord loved you, and because He would keep the oath which He had sworn to your fathers. Why did He love them? Because He loved them. There wasn't anything in Israel that merited this divine favor. There wasn't anything in this people that was worthy of God setting them apart from the other nations. It was a nation fashioned, formed, and blessed solely because of the sovereign choice of God to love. 
What a picture to us of the gospel. God didn't choose us. We weren't chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world because we were greater in number than any other people. Because we were more righteous or less sinful than any other people. He loved us because He loved us. It's a relationship that's initiated by sovereign love. Sovereign choice. No worthiness in us at all. And when Israel followed into sin, when Israel pursued the idols of the land that they had been warned not to pursue, Israel spurned this Gracious standing. It is a standing, a relationship initiated, I say, by love. I want to spend the bulk of our time, though, this evening back in the prophecy itself. So if you turn back with me to Hosea, and I want you to turn with me at this point to chapter 4. Hosea chapter 4. Of all things, turning the fan off this evening. More for keeping my Bible on the same page than any other reason. But Hosea 4, I want to begin here and do in some ways a hasty survey of this section of the prophecy where the message, the sermons, if you will, that Hosea is given to preach are put before us. And in particular, I want to just follow some of the metaphors, the images that God uses through the prophet in his description of the people. In chapter 4, verse 16, we read this word, these words in this metaphor. For Israel slideth back as a backsliding heifer. Now the Lord will feed them as a lamb in a large place. Ephraim is joined to idols. We may just pause here. Often in the prophets, you'll see the name, the title Ephraim is given with reference to Israel. Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, those two Joseph tribes. Ephraim became numerous, and it was so numerous and so prospered that in many ways it became almost a synonym for the northern people. So when you read here of Ephraim, you're just reading God's reference with regard to Israel. But here, His people, I say these that now are spurning this relationship by sin, is described as a backsliding heifer. The image here is of a heifer who was withdrawing from the yoke rather than pulling it. Pulling away and going astray, making its furrows go in the wrong direction. Israel was seeking release from the yoke of being in covenant, of being married to Jehovah. How often this is the case. We look in our own understanding today. We see it in the Old Testament Scripture so plainly. Descriptions or distinctions rather made between what we call national Israel and spiritual Israel. From what we call the visible versus the invisible church. They're those that name themselves by God's name. They will take the titles, they will own, as it were, some covenantal connection to the true God. But yet they don't walk in His ways. 
They seek release from those covenant obligations. They show propensity to follow other gods, other lovers as Gomer and thus Israel are depicted here. And here we see true in Hosea's day, true in our own, those that would cast off the yoke, the backsliding heifer. It's not gospel thinking. It's not gospel experience when those that name the name of Christ seek to cast off His yoke. For those that know Him, those that are pleased to be joined to Him by covenant, to be bound unto Him, His yoke is easy. And His burden is light. And the blessings that flow from being joined to Him are great. But Israel doesn't view it this way. Israel has long ago not enjoyed the blessings of that covenant. They've known Him only in name, not in experience. And thus the other lovers begin to look appealing. The latter part of this verse in this description, where the Lord speaks of them as a lamb in a large place, it's a a negative picture. The heifer that wants free from the yoke is going to be like a lamb that is set out in a field instead of in the safety of the shepherd's fold outside of the Lord's pasture, outside of that protection. Ultimately, a wolf, Assyria, in the hand of God, will come to chasten this backsliding heifer. Turn over quickly to chapter 7. Chapter 7 and verse 8, we read another metaphor of Israel. We read here, again under the name Ephraim, Ephraim, he hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. The picture here is of a cake of bread burnt on one side and still dough on the other. It's good for nothing. If you have ever visited a little place called Krispy Kreme and you've watched the donuts go up and down in the, yeah, and they get cooked and they're okay and they come out into the grease, they float along and they get nice and golden on the bottom and then there's this little thing and they float into it and it flips them. And then they float along and they get gold on the other side and there's a little white ring around the middle, but they come out and then they go through that waterfall of sugar. And you know what I'm talking about, hot glaze now. You ever stand and watch and one of them doesn't flip? Goes through. And if you can imagine such a thing, there's a Krispy Kreme donut that is not worth eating. It's a cake not turned. So it is with Israel. Mingled among the nations. A mixture of idolatry and at times with some appearance of godliness. The form of godliness to borrow the New Testament terminology. Israel would name Jehovah's name. But they had mingled the worship of the true God. The one that had betrothed them to Himself. 
The one who'd loved them when they were unlovely. The one that had redeemed them out of the bondage of Egypt to make them his own. And they say, well, we'll, we'll still worship him, but we'll, we'll do it in the ways of the heathen. We'll fashion an image of an oxen, a golden calf. And we'll place a couple of them in the land at Dan and Bethel. And, well, we'll worship there. And Well, now that we're worshiping our own God by an image, let's look at what other things we can, can pull from the heathen. You find these people and their mingling supposed worship of the true God with such idolatry. Good for nothing. Not following the true God. A cake not turned. But if you look in chapter 7, further down, verses 11 and 12... Ephraim also is like a silly dove without heart. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. When they shall go, I will spread my net upon them. I'll bring them down as the fowls of heaven. I will chastise them as the congregation hath heard. A silly dove without heart. We might think of that phrase meaning not caring. But I think the way to understand this here best is without understanding. They're vacillating between the rival empires, notice here, of Egypt and Assyria. The two burgeoning empires, Egypt kind of on the way down, Assyria on the way up, but Israel in proximity between them. Well, we have to have an eye on the world. We have to live in this world. We have to make our way in this world. We're going to have to intermingle with these people to turn anything good out of it. They couldn't be a light to the Gentiles. They couldn't be distinct from them and to be a message of grace unto them. No, instead they would be a silly dove without heart. The fowler sounds an alarm and the birds flee from their nests, but they're caught by the fowler in his net. They were seeking help in anything but God. And you think of that. We've talked a little bit, we'll talk more of it when we come to Amos, but the cultural setting, the particular circumstances in the northern kingdom itself. They were prospering in many ways materially, Seeking that earthly path of earthly prosperity. But when other problems came, seeking reform in all the wrong places. Seeking help in all the wrong places. It says we'll find later, not the minor, but the major prophet Jeremiah. When they sought help from the burgeoning empires to the north, if you will, Assyria and later Babylon. Many would turn to Egypt. Trying to seek some earthly, fleshly means of warding off a day that God had ordained. Well, God has ordained, sadly, a day of chastening, a day of captivity for Israel. Judah, and one of the remarkable things in Hosea is 
The prophet speaks to them of crimes, of sins they're guilty of that Judah isn't guilty of. And of course, the most notable of those, Judah has the temple. They still have the proper worship of Jehovah for political expediency. Jeroboam I, this is Jeroboam II's reign now, but Jeroboam set up those golden calves for the sole purpose of keeping his people from going to Jerusalem, the place that God had chosen to set his name there, the emblematic pictures and all of their glory to point to the one way of acceptance in Jesus. No, they are worshiping Jehovah in wrong ways. Trouble would come and they would seek unto others. And I wonder how often our nation, perhaps even professing Christians and genuine Christians in our nation, would seek help in the wrong places. Moral reform. Standing up for morality. Nothing wrong with that. But is that the answer to our needs? Social action. We have a lot of social problems. Sin brings those. But what social activity, what social program can fix the heart? None. Only the gospel fixes hearts. And I just put to you here something we've repeated in many directions over the years. Think of what Jesus and the Pharisees had in common. Ask yourself, where would the Pharisees stand on all the stuff that I read in today's news? Where would they stand on perversion and immorality? Same place we stand. Where would they stand on evolution versus creationism? Same place we stand. Where would they stand on the questions of abortion? Same place we stand. They crucified Jesus. They didn't believe the doctrines of grace. They didn't believe and preach and embrace the gospel. And that is true in our day. And we need wisdom. A silly dove without heart. Seeking to chart their way in a godless world without understanding. If you turn over to chapter 10 quickly. The opening verse of chapter 10. Israel is an empty vine. A vine casting forth its fruit. When you come and look here, and again we'll probably pause and highlight this a little further when we come to Hosea's contemporary Amos. But Israel was enjoying a season of material prosperity, economic security, political stability and security. But here their prosperity, they began even to attribute it to their idols. Prosperity had led them to sin. They weren't a people in need 
crying out to God for a just and right and gospel deliverance. They were people in comforts. Didn't see any real immediate need of God. But their fruitfulness had become a downfall to them. I wonder, and again, this is just big picture stuff. But if you look at Western history, you see the impact of the gospel in the prosperity, can we dare say such things, of Protestant nations. I remember back in the day, it may have been a while, and a teacher asked us to pause when we were studying colonialism, and I know all the pieces of that, that the problems of that. But North and South America, pretty much the same size with regard to land mass, environmental resources, natural resources, all of that. But what a tremendous difference historically and economically between North and South America. Blessing followed the gospel. Again, I'm big picture. I know there's pieces of it that are all these different problems. But Romanism, Roman nations, and those that came had some different motives mingled in than those that came here seeking freedom of religion and worship not dictated by a Roman state. Prosperity was a result. And yet in prosperity, can we say it in this way? How rare a thing it is for people to enjoy prosperity without being corrupted by it. Israel here had become prosperous, but they'd lost out with God. And God sends His prophet to challenge them. Chapter 10 as well, if you come to verse 11. And Ephraim is as an heifer that is taught and loveth to tread out the corn. This is a heifer now that doesn't mind the yoke because it's working in the treadmill. He's not muzzled. The Lord even gives instruction, you recall, about thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the grain. That ox is moving the millstone, preparing the grain that will be your food. Well, let the ox eat a little bit of that grain along the way. Maybe in being strengthened by that snacking along the way, he'll be a better worker to produce even more grain for you. Well, here, this heifer that doesn't mind the yoke because he's working in the treadmill, he's not muscled, he can grow fat out of the corn, eating as he goes. It's a far more easy and self-indulgent work, can we say, than plowing not bound together with another oxen, but one single yoke that he can 
eat of the corn as she goes. Here is a place that Israel had enjoyed liberty. But soon God would put another yoke upon her. Her abuse of such liberty, her abuse of such fatness, if you will, instead of bringing within her a grateful heart, as should have belonged to any one espoused to such a husband as the Lord, she instead gives herself to another. These are some of the pictures of Israel that are used in Hosea. There are other pictures that come, and certainly we're not exhausting them all. There are pictures that come with regard to God's chastening and His judgment upon them. Metaphorical descriptions of judgment as well as of Israel's moral character. We'll not take time to turn these and read them, but in chapter 5 and verse 12, God's judgment would come as a moth, as rottenness, as a worm unto them. In chapter 5 and verse 14, It will come as a lion. Imagery there that's remarkable of tearing them into pieces. In chapter 8 and verse 1, it said Israel, Assyria rather, would carry Israel as an eagle. Probably more properly translated there, a vulture. Not a very pleasant picture at all. And in chapter 13, the imagery of the leopard of the bear, of the lion, of the wild beast. This is really what Israel's idols will turn into under the sovereign hand of God in judging them. These, I say, pictures of Israel spurning God's love by sin. The unfaithfulness, the ingratitude, The things that are contrary to expectation. Such perversion flowing out of the sinful heart that seeks to be detached from God. But the wonder of Hosea, why the analogy of the prophet is so powerful, is it just like the prodigal in the Lord's parable? who leaves the Father's house, who moves contrary to expectation, who goes and wastes his substance as all his friends as long as the money's there and none when the money's gone. He comes to himself. He recognizes he is unworthy. And the Father... Father there waiting and watching receives him. Not as a servant, but as a son. So it is here. Israel, and if you come to the chapter that we read together, chapter 14, here is a metaphor, here is a a picture of hope. But actually, if you turn to the second chapter, it's where I want us to close this evening. Hosea chapter 2. We speak here and we'll read from verse 12 something of the judgment. I will destroy her vines, her fig trees, whereof she hath said, These are my rewards that my lovers have given me. I'll make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall eat them. 
And I will visit her upon the days of Balaam, wherein she burned incense to them, and she decked herself with her earrings and her jewels, and she went after her lovers and forgot me, saith the Lord. Here's something even more unexpected. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. I will give her for her vineyards from thence in the valley of Acre for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth and as in the day which she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi, and shalt call me no more Bali. The true husband of an unworthy people. But God will visit her and allure her afresh. Just as Hosea came and won back the heart of his Gomer, took those illegitimate children as his own, God will yet again woo Israel. The prophets, one of the common themes is there were multiplied messages of threatening, of judgment, of chastening, but always underneath a message of hope. Because ultimately, this relationship, as we said, initiated by love, spurned by sin, maintained by loyalty. As a word in the Old Testament, it is variously translated in the many, many contexts in which it occurs. It's the word hesed. Covenant loyalty. Covenantal faithfulness. It's what belongs to our God. And He has covenanted with a people who deserve His wrath and instead chosen... To set His love upon them. And even Israel, for all of our struggles and questions about how this plays out in the prophetic days, Romans 11, we speak of something at the conclusion of these days in which we live, where we Gentiles, who were not His people, are now called His people. Grafted in to that olive tree of that covenant and people when we were wild olive branches and broken off. Where we read there that all Israel shall be saved. There will be a day as we read and sing often from Isaiah's servant song. Well, Israel will understand We did esteem Him, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We didn't see any form or comeliness in Him. There's no beauty that we should desire Him. That's not our Messiah. One day, by the power of the Spirit of God, they will look upon Him whom they've pierced and say, this is our Messiah. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes, we are healed. 
The gospel is a word of covenant faithfulness. And here, Israel, what a picture. What a staggeringly amazing picture of an unworthy people. And yet of a sovereign God who loves them because He loves them. Who loves us because He loves us. A relationship maintained by loyalty. A loyal bridegroom, if you will, who amazingly woos back an unloyal, unfaithful bride and yet opens her eyes, causes her to see the emptiness of her other lovers and flee back into His willing and gracious arms. Well, if we can shamelessly quote Dr. Barrett again. What is given by analogy in the opening part of the book, seen in all those announcements and the messages and the sermons of the rest of the book, but hear this amazing faithfulness. I've forgotten the Barrett quote if you were trying with me. I'll, I'll pull it out in a minute. But God's grace, that lifestyle evangelism there it is what a picture Hosea lived it out what a picture of Christ this prophet was we while we may not be guilty of the crimes that are outlined in Hosea and later in Amos but yet we're still as undeserving we're still the recipients of the same unmerited favor of a heavenly bridegroom who loved us simply because he chose to love us. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we tonight come with hearts that would marvel as we consider the grace, the forgiving power of the gospel. And ask that you would take up something, even of these phrases out of Hosea we've so rapidly turned. That you woo us back from such lovers. Betroth us eternally to yourself. Thank you for the wonders of your grace. But above your other wonders shine. Lord, we ask and pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.